kind of system do we live in? We live in a capitalist system, but it's a specific form of capitalism. The American system of capitalism. capitalism. People are afraid of losing their status in the society. We were born capitalists. All those dynamics are constantly swirling in the American imagination. This is Dr. Edgar Rivera Colon, and this is Karl Marx Ate My Field Notes. This is our second episode of this podcast, and I um, really want to be grateful to uh, Jason Michael Webb for his sound editing as well as his uh, musical composition and the original theme that he developed for our program. Uh, Jason Michael Webb is an extraordinary composer and musician and also a Tony Award winner for a choir boy, which was on Broadway not too long ago. So thank you, Jason Michael Webb. And today we're going to start continuing with our mission here. And as I've explained before, I'm an anthropologist who studies this country, its uh, various cultures, and specifically now the Trumpian crisis. Um, last time we sort of began, we began as a sort of intro to some terms, and I told you that one of the tools that I've found important is Marxism. And it's a tool, it's not a worldview, it's a tool. It's an instrument you use to understand how capitalism works. And Marx's great genius in the 19th century was that he was able to look at capitalism sort of in one of its highest uh, forms, at least in the 19th century, which was Britain. He'd been exiled there, and that's a long story. But that's what he really did. He sat down, studied the system, and developed an analysis of it. So today, um, I, I want to go over a few things, and I also want to go back to where I ended in terms of ideology, and we'll get to that in a moment, um, but I want to remind you that this program is new, and we just set up our email. So for those of you who have comments or concerns or manifestos or critiques or want to talk about certain topics, feel free to do so. And you can reach the program at kmarks8, A-T-E, kmarks8 at gmail.com. And we'll certainly answer your emails and we're happy to entertain any ideas you may have, but also books or resources that you may have that will help us in our analysis. As I said, um, I was really compelled to create this podcast and I'm writing a book right now uh, called, uh, well, I'll tell you later about the book, um, really in response to the crisis we're living in this country in terms of Trump uh, and Trumpism. So let's uh, take a big picture look uh, again. Um, one of the things that uh, I was concerned about last time was thinking about um, learning Marxism, but also um, when I ended, I talked about all these ideas swirling in the American imagination. And I used a term that I didn't define, which is you're not supposed to do that as a teacher. So I'm sort of learning how to do pedagogy here at podcasts as I go. And uh, one of the key terms that we should think about is ideology. Now, generally speaking, ideology just means a system of ideas. But in terms of capitalism, it means a set of notions, beliefs, um, even com commonsensical ideas that allow the people who run the society to have a type of consensus 
uh, that the people who they're actually exploiting and manipulating and oppressing begin to sort of see the world from their perspective. Um, one of the great masters of thinking about how ideology functions in capitalism is a, is a little known, well, not as little known as it used to be, someone named Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci was the, one of the founders of the Communist Party of Italy. He was a writer, activist, journalist, um, and of course, because of that, he wound up in the prisons, in Mussolini's prison, an early prisoner of European fascism, and was persecuted. But like all good revolutionaries, he knew how to do things on the down low. And he basically smuggled out in little pieces of paper his writings, which are now called the prison notebooks. Um, and in the prison notebooks, he keeps on talking about this idea of hegemony, that what a capitalist class has to do in, to maintain itself in power is create a whole apparatus of feelings, of thinking, of the imagination that basically keep on returning to the idea that this society, with all its errors and defects, is as bad, best as we can get, the most practical, pragmatic way of living. Of course, this is a way of justifying exploitation. Um, and we have those things in uh, America in abundance. Let's think about one of them. The idea that um, the American dream, that if you work hard and play by the rules, you will do well in this country. Um, from a purely statistical standpoint, class mobility um, has decreased in the United States over the last 40 years. And in fact, um, a lot of people uh, experience today stagnating wages, benefits that are meaner and fewer than they were a generation or two ago, and debt that is insurmountable. The average uh, college student finishing a four-year college will have anywhere between thirty dollars to $40,000 of debt. That's, I guess, what we would call a down payment for a house not too long ago. So we see that working hard and playing by the rules, the idea of the American dream, empirically as a factual matter is not true. So if it's not true as a factual matter, how does it function in the society? It's an ideological belief. It's a way of justifying the set of power relationships that exist. You know, and then we can go to other ideas uh, in American uh, life, which is the question of exceptionalism, that we're the most exceptional country in history. We are the city on the hill, to use a, a, a term, an image from a Puritan preacher of an earlier period. And this idea that we're exceptional means that we're the best, uh, we're the greatest. Uh, this is nonsense. Uh, there are lots of countries that have higher standards of living. Uh, people live longer. They live better without the kind of stress that is clearly killing us. We have an epidemic of depression and anxiety in this country amongst our young people. And I don't think it's that they're being, you know, sort of uh, uh, snowflakes, as the right-wing media likes to talk about it. But rather, they are stressed out because of the objective conditions, the real conditions of their life. Debt, limited prospects, precarious work. You can't find a job that you can keep for the rest of your life. Let me tell you a story. My father came here from his small mountain town in Puerto Rico. He had a high school degree, and that was about it. And my mom, I don't think she ever finished 10th grade, 
and they got jobs in factories. And my father actually had what we would call at that time a union job that provided a family wage. Now, let's put aside the sort of sexist idea of that, because usually it was the male breadwinner who was figured as having uh, the family wage. But the idea was that one paycheck could provide for a whole family. And in the case of my family, it did. Um, my father was able to send kids to college, able to have houses, able to have some credit, and able to have sort of a good life for a working class person. This was the experience of hundreds of thousands of millions of Americans. That possibility of one of the students who graduates from a university I work in of directly going to a job that would provide safety for 30 years, provide health care, provide a decent pension, along with Social Security, that possibility has gone, largely for most people in this country. Outside of really parts of the healthcare economy and also parts of the criminal justice or law enforcement economy. And that's why you see a lot of people going into those fields these days. So exceptional? No. And that's these are ideologies, ideas. Hmm? But this is the, the thing that we have to remember. Ideologies not only work at the level of the mind, they work in the feeling space, in the spirit, in the soul. They make you feel like you're on the right track when what you're doing is more or less replicating what is expected of you as a consumer, hmm? as a person who uh, doesn't see the society as fundamentally flawed. So there's a feeling space that's part of it. Part of it is productive. And what do I mean by productive? I mean that, that people identify with it, that they feel strong about it, and you're able to mobilize what I like to call the emotive dreamscape of people, the emotions and the dreams of people, right? It literally brings tears to your eyes. That's a powerful form of social control, a very powerful form of social control. And so what we need to do when we think about ideology is to see it as a whole body system, if you will, of convincing people of the rightness of this society. And they could have all kinds of opinions about, you know, they need to fix this and they need to fact fix that. But fundamentally, the United States is the best of all possible worlds, the greatest country in the world. Historically, that's not true. It erases a whole set of histories. But I, I wanted you to attend to this piece of ideology, uh, because sometimes in our political discourse and the ways we critique the capitalism, American capitalism, is that we forget that it's not a question of just making the best argument. It's also engaging people at the level of feeling and the level of dreams, the level of their spirits. Now, I'll add another autobiographical note, and I'll keep on adding them as the episodes increase. I used to be uh, part of a large Catholic religious order called the Society of Jesus, a Jesuit for about five years. And it was actually there that I learned Marxism, um, which means that, you know, I sort of became a socialist and later a Marxist as a result of my Jesuit training. But the Jesuits, um, on top of their radicality, especially in Central America, where I spent some time, um, also understood the spiritual psychology of people because they understood that desire, the realm of desire, is where the action is. And so does capitalism in that sense. But the Jesuits come from a much older tradition. As time goes on, I'm going to talk about this question of desire and spirit 
and freedom and unfreedom. But for now, just remember that when I was introduced to Marxism, it wasn't through a Marxist party. It was through the Catholic Church, believe it or not. And also, I was exposed to something called liberation theology. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It was a movement that occurred in Latin America roughly from the late 60s onward, but its roots really go back much earlier than that. And the idea of liberation theology and spirituality was that the gospel as you know, sort of this central text in Christianity was about revolution, was about radical change, was about this idea that uh, we would abolish injustice. And that was one of the beginning roots of my road into Marxism, actually. So let's go back to this question of ideology, because I, I want to sort of, I really do want to talk about this in a way that is more personal. So I'm going to recommend a book for all of you. It's called The Second Coming by Franco Bifo Biraldi. And it's, it's not a theological text, or maybe it is. Um, Franco Bifo Biraldi comes out of the traditions that were and activities and politics that emerged in the late 60s in Italy. Uh, with what we would call the autonomy movement or the workers' autonomy movement. The most uh, famous figure from this movement is someone named Antonio Negri, who wrote a book called Empire, with someone named Michael Hart. And uh, Bifo uh, was part of this group that really believed that working people could organize themselves, they didn't need a vanguard party, and that the traditions of Marxism could be restored and revitalized by saying no to Stalinism, by saying no to just parliamentary democracy, and building workers' power. Now, he's, he's, he's older now, right? He's, he's approaching his 70s now. He's still quite a, a character. And in his book, The Second Coming, which is published by Polity Press, and I really recommend it, as I say, um, I'm going to read a passage that I think is important because it gets to this question of ideology. And basically, the image is Bifo, this basically Italian guy with black brown glasses with an incredible sort of mop of white hair looking out into La Strada, the street, and seeing the university students pass by in the, in the university where he teaches. And he says the following, quote, I'm 68 years old now, and I live in the same neighborhood where I used to dwell as a student and as an activist 50 years ago. Almost nothing has changed in the landscape except the students. I see them from my window, lonely, watching the, scent, the scenes, screens of their smartphones, nervously rushing to classes, sadly going by to the expensive rooms that their families are renting for them. I feel their gloom. I feel the aggressiveness latent in their depression. I know that their aggressiveness may emerge and express itself under the banner of fascism. Not the old fascism that exploded out of futuristic energy, but the new fascism, fascism that results from the implosion of desire, from the attempt to keep panic under control, and from the depressive rage of impotence." End quote. Let's go back to that last sentence. First of all, what he means by the futuristic fascism, Italian fascism, he's really talking about his own national tradition, is the idea that fascism would bring a new future of the working man. It was really working man. And this is both in Italian fascism and also in German fascism, but much stronger in Italian fascism because futurism had a much stronger impact in, the, in Italian ideas and culture. But let's go to that last sentence because I think it's important. Not the old fashion, fascism that exploded out of futuristic energy, but the new fascism 
that result from the implosion of desire, from the attempt to keep panic under control, and from the depressive rage of impotence. What, what Bifo does, what Franco Biraldi does, who's a trained philosopher in this piece, is that he allows us to imagine the emotional impact that happens in a society where people no longer see their prospects in students. And I don't want to be reductive in any way, but one of the things that's clear in his writings is the global north. We're talking about Europe, we're talking about Australia, we're talking about Japan, we're talking about uh, the United States and Canada, are really economies that are stagnant. That they reach a certain amount of growth every year, they have these certain periods that are bubbles, but generally speaking, things aren't getting radically better. So what happens to that? And, and here we're going to talk about American cow. What happens to the people who are subject to that? The people who are told, you know, follow the rules, play by the rules, and you'll do well, when in fact the prospects for their lives are not that. Well, they become enraged. They become, they feel their impotence, they feel their implosion of their desires, and they try to keep that panic under control. I submit to you, my dear listeners, that this is what we're dealing with in this country. There's whole swaths of the population. It's not really young people in this case, although I think they do feel uh, depressed and enraged by the lack of prospects. But it's large swaths of the population, a good chunk of them white, really, who are depressed, who see um, that their future is not that bright. But why? And, and because of the particular traditions of the United States, namely white supremacy, the institution of slavery and Jim Crow afterwards, uh, a lot of people, working and middle class people, only have a racialized sense of class difference. They only have that vocabulary because that's what they've been given. They've been given that by the people who run the society and create the, mostly the ideas of society. And that inability to have a class analysis, to see that Actually, the core of capitalism is the fact that they exploit us, right? That, they, that we have to work for them, that we have to go into the Walmart or the Duane Reed or to teach or we always have to sell our labor power. Um, oftentimes, um, because I'm an anthropologist, a medical anthropologist, I deal with questions of health and stigma. And I tell my students often that um, under capitalism, everyone's exploited and everyone sells their body. So I say to them, don't be moralistic about sex workers because everyone under capitalism, to put it in a rather vulgar way, sells their behind. So, so the idea here is that that exploitation is continuing and there are strategies that the ruling sectors of the society with their middle class and professional allies have created to um, make us feel uh, disempowered, hmm? not to feel uh, like we can change the situation. Um, and we feel that exploitation. We have to work all the time, the working day, always working, working more, two or three jobs. I actually live on a block in gentrified downtown where I see the young people coming from the financial district and the and the, uh, uh, the the real estate district 
in New York City, and they come with their, as, as Bifo says, with their headsets on, they're looking at the telephones, maybe they're talking to someone, and they're just rushing at 8 or 9 o'clock just to have some dinner because they're working like dogs. Hmm? And we see that throughout the whole society. That's just one slice of it. And the question then becomes, well, how do we change this? Part of it is we have to begin to be analyze our reality, begin to see, well, fish begin to see the waters that they're swimming in. Hmm? And some people drown. And some people begin to change the oceans they're swimming in. And I think it's important for us to, to be uh, centered on what are the ideologies that we're dealing with internally, but also externally. Hmm. Last time I talked about um, the question of deindustrialization, um, how uh, the people who owned the country, who owned the corporations, who basically controlled what used to be called the commanding heights of the economy, how they uh, moved jobs out of the country, moved them to areas of the country where unions were not as strong. And when I think about that, I think about the fact that we also have this question of globalization. And this is the thing to think about when you're sort of trying to analyze globalization. Globalization is a accumulation strategy. It's a way of making money, and it's about class power. It's not a natural process. It's not people being more open to cultures. Uh, capitalism has been global from the beginning. Hmm? But it's really about elites throughout the world that have a lot more in common with each other in Tokyo, in London, in Lagos, in Sao Paulo, in New York City, in Montreal, in Paris, in all these places. They have a lot more in common with each other than they have with the laboring people of their own countries. So globalization, the effects of it, are really about a class strategy that's been enacted in the last 40 years to make more money, to accumulate more power and more capital. So it's not a natural process. And so what we see is the effects of globalization and deindustrialization in the United States through the lens, basically, of white supremacy and racism that people encounter every day. And we have to break through that. We have to learn to see each other as connected somehow. Part of that is to undermine those ideological tropes, those narratives, those stories we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good. Like, I'm going to work hard and it's all going to be well. Or um, everyone's here because of merit. That's nonsense. We know that's monsense. We don't live in meritocracy. We live in a society that is basically more or less a corporate oligarchy. Now, how do we address this? How do we challenge this? Part of it is that we start learning together, we start thinking together, and we start feeling, and we also start criticizing. I like the idea that when people can get together and name their problems, they can begin to articulate solutions. Many people on the left talk about unity. Many people in progressive circles talk about unity. And it's an important idea. But most ideas of unity that we have are strictly ideological. They're about a united country, but in whose interest, whose freedom, whose power is being articulated through that. Unity is based upon the recognition of concrete shared needs that are differential. Unity is basically the recognition in a collective process of the different needs that people have, but they also share. 
So when I think about solutions to the problem, to how the American political imagination can be expanded instead of narrowed as it has been in the era of Trump, I always think that we need to begin a popular way of educating ourselves to talk to each other, to begin the process of creating the America we should deserve, we do deserve, that we can create another country, as James Baldwin would put it. And that process is about recognition of these differences, of their shared needs, and we can build unity on that. And as Grace Lee Boggs says, our great philosopher, revolutionary who lived to be 100, and you should read her writings if you get a chance, we need to grow our souls. The time has come to grow our souls. In our next episode, now that Karl Marx has ate my field notes, I'm just going to have to talk a little bit about soul. And remember, it's through hard thought, hard living, and hard loving that we're going to change this place.